It's a sensitive, delicate deal, dragging brand new songs out of the sky. Trading ideas, accepting some, storing others in the maybe later bag, moving on and along with hardly a plan. During the Zep years, I never imagined a full-scale album project without the other guys, and even less the idea of new writing partners. But then, since 1981, I've enjoyed many amazing, exciting musicians in the sharing, in the writing, in production and engineering. Men and women who encouraged and enlightened, introducing me to crazy curves I could never have imagined. For this podcast, I'm going to be picking out some songs from here and there along the way, mixing constant shifts in sound and intention from across this long, old time. There's a story in all of them. I'm Robert Plant, and this is Digging Deep. Hello, and welcome to this episode six of Digging Deep with Robert Plant. My name is Matt Everett, and as you may know, if you've heard the show before, this is the podcast where Robert Plant digs into his incredible back catalogue and picks one song to focus on and kind of study and talk about where the inspiration came from, the people he played with, and the kind of uh, the legend behind the creation of some of these brilliant pieces of music. Before we get stuck in, we do have to say thank you for continuing to listen to the series. It's something of an honour to do these. As you know, it's something that Robert really wanted to do himself to kind of start documenting these tracks from his history and to see how popular the shows have become you know it's pretty great so thank you very much so in this episode we turn our attention to an ep in fact not a song or a full album but an ep released in september 1984 now it was made up of cover versions uh, all sung by robert but with this killer band of incredible musicians and the thing is this ep focused on a very specific era of classic american doo-wop and jump blues Here's Robert explaining more. I get a thrill from the Honey Drippers Volume 1. So why is that song on this list? Well, the, the whole concept of the Honey Drippers is uh, it's, it's a very charming story. Uh, when Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler signed... Uh, with Herb Abramson in 1968. They did a deal with Peter Grant uh, and Led Zeppelin signed to Atlantic Records. The relationship, the thrill of that, if you like, of that um, coming together for all of us from our generation was to be somewhere near people who'd worked with Ray Charles, Aretha, you know, um, the Clovers, the Robins who became the Coasters, Benny, names. Yeah, Betty King, Clyde McFatter, who was with Billy Ward and the Dominoes and then moved over to the Drifters for a while. So we were going into the Hall of the Mountain Kings, really. And, uh, and as the years sort of cascaded and, and sort of flipped down through time, we really, really melded with Armit. I mean, I don't know whether or not he did us any favours. I don't think he did, if I think back now, at the kind of way the structure was in the game in the 60s and 70s. But he had a smorgasbord. He had a whole portfolio of people that he knew from, from the real serious good musicians from the modern jazz quartet, you know, right through. Um, and um, so Ahmet would hold parties 
would demand Led Zeppelin would demand a party in New Orleans because that was probably one of the biggest cities of influence to us, you know, um, with people like Aaron Neville, Lee Dorsey, Professor Longhair, Earl King, Snooks Eaglin, uh, Jesse Hill, Chris Kenner. The whole of that city uh, was just absolutely full of rhythm and uh, a kind of a latent sexuality in the music it was stunning really really amazing place to be anyway we used to have some quite riotous parties down there uh with him and um and time passed and a lot of those artists passed on and um and so did led zepp you know so as time went on i as a solo artist i i uh, fixed up a deal with atlantic again continued it and my relationship with armit got more and more social rather than I wasn't part of a band. I was just, you know, pushing my own rock up the hill. So he and I became really good friends and we go out a lot together and listen to people playing. And uh, uh, <laughs> I remember being in New Orleans once with him going to Tipitina's, the real famous club down there, to see uh, Etta James. And, um, and we were walking backstage to see her and she had a voice. I mean, not only a singing voice, but a speaking voice. And she, uh, she said, Erdogan, what are you doing here? I said, ah, another good record deal somewhere down the line. Then, actually, she was never on Atlantic. Um, what, but, she, what was she like? Oh, she was great. She was, uh, she, she was a survivor. I mean, along with Ruth Brown and people like that. You know, these, uh, these women had, they had to slug it out the deals in those days and the the whole the scallywag element you know was ridiculous and they were a lot of them pretty embittered for a whole career because of that everything changes if you think about the contemporary world today and the whole idea of shifting music conceptually i mean the avenues of access the whole windows of opportunity for artists are based on, I suppose, um, entrepreneurs pointing music at a partic in a particular direction. Well, black music in the 50s and early 60s was going everywhere. It was breaking all the kind of racial barriers. Uh, Alan Freed and people like that were playing black rock and roll on white stations. And the whole thing was like, it was like frontier land. So some of these artists were amazing i mean because they'd gone through all that crap and all that stuff and and they'd still survived and they was now they were doing better than they ever did in their heydays some of them you know so anyway i used to go out with armit and uh hang around talking and uh <laughs> i remember one night i went out with him and phil specter in new york and we were in a, a club somewhere and we decided it was time to sing the outros of famous vocal <laughs> music from the late 50s and early 60s. So we only sang the ends of the songs. And you can imagine how hysterical it would be. Armit didn't have a great voice, but he knew all those. The fade out of a 45 in 1960 was when the singer could break away from regular melody and uh, disappear into this great um, abstraction, I suppose. So... Anyway, because <laughs> the myth of Spectre is of a, what's the best way of putting it, an unpredictable gentleman 
Was that the case, really? Well, I don't know. I didn't live with him. I mean, <laughs> I just spent um, time around him and Army, and and it was, I guess, it was kind of not a mutual admiration society, but we we knew our st- we know our stuff, knew our stuff, and um, and so there was no there was no gamesmanship or nothing like that. We were just kicking back and thinking about what Gene Pitney would have done next, you know. Uh, and so Armit kept saying to me, man, why don't you stop all this weird shit and just do some of those songs? He said, you've got an encyclopedic memory and reference to 50s uh, jump blues and doo-wop and stuff like that. And as a singer from my time, I'm sure that if you spoke to anybody else like from who was beginning when I began, say, say Rod Stewart, listening to the soul stirs and sam cook and all that mel carter and all those people and elton jagger with his vocal approach we were all listening to people from that particular time you know so he said you keep on singing these songs it's driving me nuts he said i can get anybody in the studio to play them why don't you sing them so um so i did quite a band yeah yeah what can you remember from the if i arrived in the studio for one of the recording sessions of that album who would i see what would be the vibe in there well the vibe was let's get it going quick and hurry up so um jeff beck and jimmy page and nile rogers played alongside the rhythm section it's funny really because it was so nonchalant as a recording in New York when we did uh, Good Rockin' at Midnight, which is a great track. Actually made the top 30 singles in America. And Sea of Love was my biggest solo hit ever. <laughs> I mean, I've heard better versions of it, but there we go. But Jeff came in, he put a little amp on a table, and it was probably uh, about three yards from the, the drum kit. But we just started playing it. Of course, in the cans, in the headphones, it just sounded almighty. So we just cut the track. And then later on, when we came to mix it, I wanted to bring the drum kit a little bit louder and the the cymbals, the overhead microphones that mic'd up the top of the drum kit. And every time I lifted that up, Jeff got louder and louder. (laughs) And that really is the story of thousands and thousands of amazing records that if you go back and strip them down, that's what happens. But, uh, yeah, it was really... uh, Jimmy played on Sea of Love and... uh, he played on this. I, I get a thrill. So we were, uh, for at least an afternoon, we were back together. <laughs> but it's a great song. I think it's a Winoni Harris track. And maybe I chose this, never mind the story, but I chose it because it was the first time that I was able to sing with a really organized backing vocal setup. And that was like a dream come true. And uh, I guess that was the beginning of what happened to me in the last. 10 years or so, you know, um, fitting my vocal style in around other people's organized singing, you know, that's a fantastic thing to do. I was starved of it up until that very point in about 1984, and I went, well, I can do this. Yeah, it's good. Straight me tender. 
That was episode six of Digging Deep with Robert Plant. I think there's a very good case for a Honey Drippers Volume 2 EP, don't you think? Also, I just want to hear Noel Rogers, Paul Schaefer, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page and Robert all performing together again. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening. As always, do hit subscribe to get the next episode and also go back and listen to previous episodes. As I say, we kind of span the whole of Robert's career here. So this is kind of, um, it's just about the songs that uh, that mean a lot to him. And so hopefully, yeah, we're going to keep on doing this because we enjoy doing it. Um, until then, I've been Matt Everett. Thank you very much for listening. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. Oh, yeah.